What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. How's it going, everyone? And welcome to another episode of the Armed Scholar Podcast. Like I mentioned, going to try to make this a more traditional thing, make it a weekly thing. Um, actually, the response to the podcast has been even better than I ever thought. So thank you guys so much for everybody that's been listening, uh, everybody that's been watching it over on the second YouTube channel, everybody who is following on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all those. Um, a lot better than I could have ever thought. Um, again, I just really appreciate your guys' support. It was something that I wanted to do for a long time. A lot of you had asked me to do for a long time, but it just was finding a time in my day to actually do this. So now I'm making it a concerted effort and, and really trying to do this. Uh, so let me know down in the comment section if you guys are enjoying this and on Spotify and the reviews and all that stuff. It really does help these podcasts. It helps to get them out on the algorithm a little bit more and just helps to help more people find them. Um, so... In this podcast, I want to talk about the pistol brace rule. Uh, since I put out the last podcast, the pistol brace rule that was dropped by the ATF has kind of been the main uh, talking point. Um, as I'm recording this, I just got back from SHOT Show, uh, SHOT Show 2023, and the uh, main discussion point and the main topic that came up during the entire show was the pistol brace rule. Um, probably got asked by a million people my opinion of the pistol brace rule, um, various questions about what is actually going on in the pistol race rule. Um, so I thought it was probably important for me to break it down a little bit more in a podcast, in a more conversational, long form discussion, rather than the few videos that I've done that are shorter, more on specific topics of the pistol brace rule. So that's what I'm going to try to tackle here in this podcast. And if you know anybody who maybe would find an interest in this podcast where I cover the pistol brace rule, uh, feel free to share it to them. But like I mentioned at SHOT Show, this was the big, big major topic. Um, uh, also, I want to mention for those of you who were at SHOT Show and maybe I met you at SHOT Show, um, thank you guys so much for all the people who stopped me to say that you enjoy the channel, you appreciate what I'm doing. It means the world to me. Um, one of the main reasons I go to those events is not really to meet companies or meet other people. Um, a lot of the times at these shows, it's not actually very beneficial to me for me to go to those because, you know, being in California, I can't even purchase probably 99% of the things that are at on display there. Um, and also a lot of times it's just, oh, look at the thousand different types of ARs. Look at the thousand different uh, Glock clones. So there's not really a whole lot for me there. But one of the main reasons I go is to interact with you, the viewers, people who maybe are going to those events. Um, so if you ever see me at an event, please stop me. Um, if you want a picture, please take a picture. I'm, I'm also amazed how many people want to take pictures with me because I'm an absolute nobody. It's it's very strange to me, um, but I'm always more than willing to take pictures with people because that's the least I can do for all the support you guys have shown me. Um, yeah, but like I mentioned at SHOT Show, so many people were asking me about the pistol brace rule. In fact, at one point I even um, was interacting with Lucas from T-Rex Arms and the T-Rex Arms crew there, uh, took a picture with them. But one of the main topics where we had our conversation was specific to the um, pistol brace rule. And they were asking me questions about my opinion of the pistol brace rule, where I thought it was going from there and just some, a variety of questions in relation to that. So, you know, that's the hot topic. And that's what I'm going to try to cover here in this podcast. So 
Starting off with the pistol brace rule, if you're not aware, the ATF has released their final rule on pistol braces. Um, the rule is it's kind of framed around pistol braces, but really it's a redefinition of what constitutes a rifle and specifically also what constitutes a short barreled rifle. Um, one of the things that I want to clarify from the outset, which I've also mentioned in my videos, is that this is not a pistol brace ban. This is not a ban on the possession, purchase, or use of the item itself, the pistol brace. So I know some people have put up videos or have uh, spoken on this issue and are calling it a pistol brace ban, um, which I understand. You know, sometimes when you're talking about ATF overreach, it's easy to just call it a ban on something. Um, but this isn't necessarily a ban on the item itself. It's not like a magazine ban, like in the state of California, where we actually have a ban on the buying, selling, possession, and use of magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. This pistol brace rule is more of a restriction on certain uses of that item. So it's not illegal for you to possess pistol braces. It's not illegal for you to even buy them going forward. Um, it's more of a restriction on you using them on certain configurations of firearms and your use of them on that firearm then magically transforms that specific firearm, which used to be a pistol, all of a sudden into a rifle. So it was funny when I did my first video and I was kind of reading into the uh, pistol brace rule, this final rule, and was trying to configure my thoughts on how I would actually present what this is doing. It, it brought to mind the whole, um, one of my favorite movies of all time is Tombstone. Uh, the one with Val Kilmer. Um, and it, it was just one of those one movies uh, back in my day when we had VHSs. Uh, it was one of the only movies we had on VHS. So I watched it a million times. It was my stepfather's favorite movie. Uh, my stepfather actually looks a lot like uh, Wyatt Earp in that movie. Um, you know, cowboy hat, big mustache, almost looks identical to him. So it was a movie I watched a ton, tangent. Um, but when I was reading through this pistol brace rule, one of the things that it reminded me of is the scene in Tombstone when Virgil and the brothers become the the um, sheriffs of the town and they put up that ordinance where you can't carry a handgun within the town. And there's that whole crowd and they're all angry at them for putting up this ordinance. And Virgil says, like, no one's saying you can't have a gun. No one's not even saying you can't carry a gun. You just can't carry a gun in town. And that's pretty much what this pistol brace rule does. It doesn't say you can't have a pistol brace. It can't, doesn't even say you can't use a pistol brace. It just says you can't use them on certain types of firearms. So that is kind of the route that the ATF is taking here. It's not an outright ban because, of course, if it was an outright ban on a type of arm, then it would clearly run afoul of Heller and McDonald in those Supreme Court precedents that say you can't you know, do a categorical ban on a specific type of item that might be considered an arm. So that's one of the main things that I want to clarify, because again, I've seen a lot of people say this is a pistol brace ban. At best, you could say it's maybe a ban on a specific type of use, I think is kind of the better way to frame it. Um, and for those not familiar with generally what the pistol brace rule is trying to do at the highest level, what it, it what it aims to do is recategorize specific types of 
AR pistols, that which we have traditionally considered to be AR pistols or AK pistols or, or various types of pistols, even what, what the ATF has prior classified as pistols, it is trying to redefine them and treat them actually as rifles and, in fact, actually treat them as short-barreled rifles and therefore subject them to the NFA's restrictions, which would be taxation and registration under the NFA. Essentially, what the ATF is saying is firearms configured in this specific way are, in fact, SBRs, and therefore they will be treated as SBRs under the NFA. In fact, in the rule, what the ATF has said is that these items have always been SBRs. They have always been subject to the NFA, despite even what the ATF has said. And therefore, they are going to treat them as if you've always been in possession of an NFA item, of an, an SBR. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. Um, but that's the high, high level, you know, you know, quick one minute pitch that if someone had no idea what's going on, if I was to tell them what this aims to do, that's what I would say. Now, this rule does a lot more than just that. Um, so let's go a little bit deeper into what this does. Um, as many of you are aware, also, there is a 120 day period that is added into this rule, which means on the date of publication, you would count 120 days from there and you must be in compliance with the final rule um, before that 120 days is up. And what that means is you have a few options that the ATF has, has essentially given us, um, which they don't have the right to give us anything. Um, they don't even have the authority to do what they're doing here, which will obviously be challenged in a variety of lawsuits, which will be coming very soon. Um, but 120 days, um, you must be come in compliance. And then after that, they will start to enforce this new rule on frames and receivers. Um, the options you would have would be to first modify the uh, firearm that you have right now. That prior was considered to be a pistol. You have the option to remove the brace and make it so that the brace can no longer be placed on that item going forward. Um, the other option you would have, it would be to destroy the entire firearm. Yeah, that's right. The ATF, in fact, added into this rule that one of your options would be to completely destroy the firearm. Uh, not even just remove the brace, but to completely destroy it um, because they would say that that entire item itself is an SBR and maybe that you would want to destroy it. But your best option would be to just simply remove the brace and make sure that it could never be attached to it going forward. Um, the third option they gave you would be to turn it over to the ATF. So essentially a confiscation, um, you know, a takings by the government without any compensation. So that's going to be another issue likely mentioned in some of these lawsuits. Um, so that's one of your options is to turn over that item to the ATF or to law enforcement. And actually I want to take a second here and talk about the whole takings issue. You know, the, the takings clause has been brought up in a variety of lawsuits, including with the California magazine ban. And I'm not opposed to the whole takings arguments, but often they just serve as kind of a secondary or third argument. I think these types of cases are much better suited to be argued on the actual um, administrative, you know, procedures act, um, constitutional grounds. I think those are the stronger arguments. Sometimes these cases get 
stuck in the weeds in regards to the takings clause or the ADA violations, you know, that will likely the ADA violations will likely be brought up also in this case, because this does impact individuals with disabilities who definitely want these items, who want to be able to use a pistol brace to be able to firearms to fire firearms of this type in a more efficient way. But like I said, those tend to be second or third arguments. I think the best arguments we have for these are actually on the procedure violations of the ATF, constitutional grounds, you know, the overreach of the ATF in redefining things that they don't have the authority to under the statute, you know, fighting against the whole Chevron deference arguments, the rule of lenity arguments that we've talked about before on the channel. I think those are the better arguments that we have. So that's just a ta tangent. Now, the last option you have for what to do with pistols, pistols with braces on them, um, now that they're considered SBRs, would be to register them with the ATF and to register them as an SBR. Now, I know I mentioned that they want to subject them to the interface restrictions, including taxation. What they said here is that they are going to waive the $200 tax stamp. They are going to have a kind of tax app tax stamp amnesty. Um, and a little bit later, we're going to talk about some of the new things that have come to light in regards to the registration of these items. Um, specifically, there were questions by GOA's attorney, uh, by one of the GOA's attorney um, at SHOT Show. He talked to the ATF, uh, the deputy director at their booth, and there were some questions about the 88-day denial and some of the enforcement actions that the ATF would take against people if your background check did not clear the NICs within the 88 days, um, there were issues in regards to that. Um, there's just a, there's quite a bit of issues also with the pistol brace rule. You know, some things are coming up as far as imported rifles with a brace attached to them. You know, you really don't have an option to register them is the argument right now, according to um, FRAC, which is the FRAC. Um, they put out a notice saying that some of the language in the final rule indicates that firearms that were imported with pistol braces on them, since the ATF considers those two always have been rifles, you then cannot remove the brace and try to still treat them as a pistol since the ATF has said that they are always a rifle and under 922R, it's illegal to um, manufacture these rifles under that one specific language. So we'll get a, bit, a little bit into that later. Um, but you, like I said, those were the main options you have is to modify, destroy, turn them over to the ATF or to register them with the ATF. So those are the main options. You have 120 days to do that. The ATF also said there's going to be a 60 day window um, to where the manufacturers and dealers of these items potentially can still sell these, transfer these um, without there being enforcement actions against them in the Final rule, the ATF actually said that they believe they have authority right here and now to, in fact, enforce these rules against the manufacturers, dealers, and to stop all transfers, to stop the halt of the sale of these and all that, and to take enforcement actions against people who are engaging in those type of transfers. However, what they said is they will give a 60-day halt on enforcement, you know, in their good graces, you know, in their... Um, omnipotence and their all-powerful, you know, ability, the ETF is going to give 60 days 
for the final rule to go through the Congressional Review Act process. And then after the 60 days, they will, in fact, take enforcement actions on all transfers, sales, you know, in, pos- in possession, not even pos- no, pos- forget I said possession, but the transfer and sale of future uh, firearms with braces attached to them. They will start treating those to be like SBR transfers. So 60 days is kind of the first timeline we're looking at. And then the 120 days, which will affect all people. The 60 days is primarily geared towards like gun dealers, gun manufacturers, gun stores who are still engaged in the uh, sale and transfer and transactions in regards to these items. So those are the main deadlines. Um, Those are the main things that the ATF wants you to do. So now let's take a little bit deeper look into this rule and how it actually does this and what process the ATF went through to now redefine these pistols with braces on them to actually be considered rifles and short-barreled rifles. So first, the ATF did this by modifying the regulatory definition of a rifle so that now they will also include into that definition And here's a quote of the rule. It says a weapon that is equipped with an accessory component or other rearward attachment, i.e. a stabilizing brace that provides surface area that allows the weapon to be fired from the shoulder, provided other factors which indicate that the weapon is designed, made or intended to be fired from the shoulder. So that last blurb right there is what's being added into or is being modified into the regulatory definition of a rifle. Already in the federal regulations and already in the GC and the NFA, we had a definition of what a rifle is. The firm definitions of what a rifle will be found in the GC and the NFA. They have very expressed language of what a rifle is. Then you have the federal federal register or the federal regulatory guides, which further define what the ATF believes a rifle to be. And they had their definition. What they're doing is they're going into the CFR and they're adding into this language. They're adding this language here, which they just referenced into that definition. And by doing that, they are going to bring in all these other firearms into that regulation uh, because of that importing of the language. So, That's kind of the general test. What they're saying is if you have a weapon that is equipped with any type of accessory, if it's attached rearward to that firearm, like a stabilizing brace or other items as well, and it provides any, and and I want to emphasize any surface area at all to that weapon, then it is an indication that that weapon is intended to be fired from the shoulder and therefore is in fact a rifle, not a pistol. Um, and they said there also are going to be other factors that are considered along with this. So really what this, what happens because of this new definition is it's kind of a two process test or two prong approach. And I I don't want to confuse people because we talk about like the two step approach a lot on the channel and far, as far as like, um, circuit court review of cases. This is a little bit different. When I say it's kind of just a two-step test, what I mean is there's just two parts to this. Uh, The first part is if it has any rearward attachment um, to it, 
and it has any surface area that would indicate it's intended to be fired from the shoulder. That's kind of the first step. So the ATF would look at your specific firearm, how it's configured, does it have an attachment on it that has surface area, which may indicate it's intended to be fired from the shoulder. If they check that first box and say, yes, there is an attachment which with surface area, they then move to the second part. And the second part is derived from the ATF worksheet 4999. Now, here's another point I want to emphasize. I've seen some articles go up and I've corrected some of those people who have put up articles um, and to their credit, they have, you know, updated their stuff. Um, There's mention of maybe the ATF still going off the worksheet 4999. And in, in some ways they are. But the worksheet itself, the worksheet 4999, was completely scrapped. They completely got rid of that. In fact, if you go and read through the final rule, the ATF talks heavily about all the opposition they got to that worksheet. And there were a ton of comments to the ATF talking about how that worksheet is so overly vague. It was, you know, it was, I'll be honest, it wasn't as vague as what they're doing now, which is surprising. Um, but there were a lot of comments coming out against the worksheet 4999 because of the point system that it had. And if you're not familiar, in the proposed rule on pistol braces, um, they had that worksheet and it was pretty much like this. I call it a report card system. You would look at your firearm and you would look at what items it had on it, how it was configured its size, its weight, its length of pull, and you would essentially grade your firearm and you would give it various points which scaled from one to four. And if your firearm had enough points on it, then it would be considered to be an SBR. So that was that worksheet 4999. What they did in the final rule is they completely scrapped that and they took five of the main or I think it was six of the main factors which you could kind of gather from that worksheet. And then they added those six main points into the second step. So at the first step, like I mentioned, you would see if there was any attachment to your firearm that had surface area, which indicated it was intended to be fired from the shoulder. If it did, then you move to the second step. And the second step is kind of a hodgepodge of these six main factors which are derived from the worksheet 4999. And I'll I'll read them to you if you're curious. The first one is whether the weapon has a weight or length consistent with the weight or length of similarly designed rifles. So the first kind of factor that they would take into consideration is the they would ask, is the weight and length consistent to other types of rifles? If it is, then the indication would be that your AR pistol is actually a rifle, not a pistol. The second one is whether the weapon has a length of pull measured from the center of the trigger to the center of the shoulder stock or other rearward accessory component or attachment, including a, an adjustable or telescoping attachment with the ability to look into various position or to lock into various positions along the buffer tube, receiver extension, or other attachment method that is consistent with similarly similarly designed rifles. So again, at the second one, what they look at is the length of pull. Does your AR pistol as configured now with a pistol brace attached to it, does that have a similar length of pull to other types of rifles? If it does, 
then that is an indication, according to the ATF, that it is in fact a rifle, not a pistol. The third one is whether the weapon is equipped with sights or a scope with eye relief that require the weapon to be fired from the shoulder in order to be used as designed. So there, that's a little bit more of an interesting one. They, um, there was a lot of discussion on the worksheet 4999 about iron sights being on a rifle or specific types of um, optics being on your rifle. Here, they specifically are pulling kind of the optics aspect of it. Um, if there is a scope with a specific type of eye relief where you have to sh shoulder it to be able to even see through it, then that is an indication that it's a rifle. So that that one right there is a little bit more clear, at least that we know a little bit more specifically what they are talking about as far as, you know, if you can't if you can't see out of your your scope or whatever optic you have mounted without shouldering it, then that's a strong indicator that, yes, that that item on your firearm will make it considered to be a rifle. So at least that one's a little bit more clear. Still, I want to make clear still, you know, clearly a, a violation of what the ATF can do. But at least as far as that one's concerned, we have a little bit more of an understanding of what they are trying to do. Number four says that whether the surface area that allows the weapon to be fired from the shoulder is created by a buffer tube, receiver extension, or any other accessory component or other rearward attachment that is necessary for the func for the cycle of operations. Now we'll get a bit, a little bit more into this later because they do add some clarity. But at, at a first glance, a lot of people were talking about how you know, this would indicate that you can't have any buffer tube at all on these firearms. So that if it even had a buffer tube on it, it would automatically be considered to be an SBR. Um, in some circumstances, yes. Um, but in other circumstances, no. Because they talk about the uh, it being necessary for the cycle of operations, which we'll get into a little bit later. Because later on, when you go through the rule, they uh, there were comments which were reflecting our concern about how we don't know actually what they mean when they say surface area, what they mean by when they say weight or length of pull or these, you know, various other issues like the whole buffer tube issue. Um, so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but it, I guess at the quickest glance, if you wanted to take something away from this would be that if you have something attached to the end of your firearm, that is not necessary for the cycling of or the cycle of operations for the actual like cycle in firing of the firearm, then they will use that as an indication that it's actually intended to be fired from the shoulder that and that it's not a pistol. So think about a lot of type of firearms or AR pistols or AR style pistols or AK style firearms that, you know, don't necessarily have a buffer tube with a spring and all that in it that are necessary for it to be fired in that way. Um, also, there were some mentions about like 22 caliber configurations where you don't necessarily need the buffer tube or anything like that. Think about there are firearms out there that don't rely on a buffer tube, uh, the puff, buffer spring and all that. Um, those type of firearms, if you have something attached to the end of it, would then you know, be an indication that all that stuff added to the end of your rifle is actually added so that you can shoulder it and therefore fire it while being, while it's shouldered and therefore be an indication that it's in fact a rifle, not a pistol. So again, that's just a quick overview of that. We'll get a little bit more depth in that in a little bit. Uh, number five, as far as the indication is that the manufacturer's direct and indirect marketing and promotional, promotional materials 
indicating the intent, intended use of the weapon, and six, information demonstrating the likely use of the weapon in the general community. Now, number five and six are very specific to how things have played out historically, specific to the whole pistol-braced issue. When they talk about manufacturers' direct and indirect marketing, that's really targeted towards companies like SB Tactical and all the all these other manufacturers who made pistol braces and marketed them in a way that said, these are pistol braces. This firearm is not a rifle, but you can still shoulder it and fire it from the shoulder. And then you had a ton of marketing materials which showed these firearms being shouldered from the weapon, which they have every right to do that stuff. Um, but there was, you know, during this period of time, there were a lot of people who had concerns about um, various YouTubers, you know, showing them firing these firearms from their shoulder um, with braces attached to them. And then also a lot of these companies which were manufacturing and marketing these materials in a way that showed that they were going to be shouldered and fired. Um, and specifically here, the ATF is using that against those manufacturers in the general community. So what they're saying here is if you are manufacturing them in a way and you're making statements about them in a specific way and the general community is using these items in a specific way, we will use that against you and show that these items are in fact intended to be shouldered and fired from the shoulder. So that's really what that's geared towards. And, and I think also what they're trying to do here is maybe prevent other types of items popping up on the market, you know, being marketed in a specific way or being shown again, being shouldered and, and fired. And so they're just trying to close that little gap right there and just also make sure that if the community in general ever uses an item in a specific way, they can then leverage that against us, which obviously is ridiculous, but that's what they're doing. Um, so those are the six kind of sub factors which make up the second step on that test. The first step is, does it have an accessory attached to the end of it with surface area that shows maybe an intent to be fired from the shoulder? If yes, then you move to the second step and it's a hodgepodge of these six other factors. Now they don't say if it's if it has any one of these factors, then they considered it to be a rifle. If it's a combination, um, really, I think it's gonna be any of these. You know, If it has any one of these, they will then likely consider it to be a rifle and therefore an SBR. So you can find that that this whole test aspect of it is reiterated probably <laughs> thousands of times in the ATS final rule. Um, the ATS final rule on pistol braces repeats itself at nauseum and they could have probably cut out 50 pages if they just didn't repeat themselves a, a bunch of times. But one of their goals also is to make it so difficult for you to actually read these rules and to pull out what they're actually trying to do. So they're not going to make it easy on us. But that is the general test. You can find it in the final rule multiple places. Um, and like I said, those six factors are kind of going to be the main one, the main ones, the, the things that are going to be most important. Um, when it comes to the surface area. So now let's break these down kind of a little bit more um, specifically, like I mentioned I would. When it comes to surface area, I've heard some people say, well, we don't really know what surface area means. The ATF in the final rule mentions multiple times, you know, surface area, if it has some sort of surface area, 
um, then maybe it's an indication that it's intended to be fired from the shoulder. But some people are saying, well, maybe there are various items that don't have enough surface area. Maybe if some of these items that already exist on the market, if we take some of the surface area off of it, maybe then it will be legal for you to still use as an AR pistol or an AK pistol. Now, I understand the rule is long, but if you go to, I believe it's page 102, um, in response to a comment in regards to surface area, the ATF clarifies what they mean at, for surface area. Um, and when it comes to surface area, the ATF specifically states, in making the determination of whether surface area allows for shoulder firing, ATF will not attempt to precisely measure the surface area or make the determination based on the existence of any minimum surface area. Instead, the ATF will consider whether, is, whether there is any surface area on the firearm that can be used to shoulder, the, to shoulder fire the weapon. If the firearm includes surface area that can be used for shoulder firing the weapon, the weapon potentially qualifies as a rifle. In contrast, if the weapon does not include such surface area, then it does not qualify as a rifle. To assess whether a weapon, a potential rifle, is in fact a rifle, ATF would then consider the other factors. So again, you can find that on, I believe it's on at the bottom of page 102. Um, and what they're essentially saying there is, if it has any, if there is any surface area, then it is potentially considered to be a rifle and they will look at the other factors. Um, so it doesn't even matter. It's not a measurement. It's not a, you know, a specific amount. They're not even going to attempt to say what that looks like. They just went ahead and just said any, if it has any surface area that can be shouldered, then it could be a rifle and they're going to move on to the other factors, those six other factors that I mentioned. So that's very important. If you hear people maybe getting confused about that, saying maybe, you know, we just need less surface area. Or if you see a product pop up on the market that says, well, this, you know, doesn't meet the ATF definition because it has less surface area. Just look at it. If it has any surface area, it's likely going to get hit by this new rule. Um, so it, it becomes less important to look at the whole surface area aspect um, and to kind of look at these six other factors more. Um, if obviously, like they said, if there is nothing attached to your firearm and therefore there's no surface area, then you don't really have to worry about that. But that's not what we're talking about here as far as how these pistols are traditionally configured. So then they move on to the other sub factors, which is like weight. And again, what they say as far as weight is that they're not going to state any specific weight requirement. They're not going to say, you know, a specific ounce or poundage or whatever. In the worksheet 4999, if I recall correctly, there was a specific weight requirement, but they scrapped that. So they're not even saying a specific weight anymore. Instead, what they did is they added in an entire list of comparable weights of rifles. And they say, look at this list of rifles and what weights they have. And if your firearm as configured with a pistol brace, this pistol with this brace on it, if it has a similar weight to a rifle, then we are going to consider that to be a rifle. 
So again, it's one of those things where they say compare it to a rifle. If it's similar to a rifle, then we're going to consider it to be a rifle. If you're curious about those weight requirements, you can find that on page 115 to 121 um, where they have the list of weights. Then they talk about length of pull. And again, they simply just say we're not going to define specifically what the length of pull is. Instead, we're going to say you need to compare them to other rifles or to rifles, not other rifles because these aren't rifles. Um, the ATF says they're rifles, but I don't believe that they're rifles. But they say that you need to compare these AR pistols to rifles. And again, they have a list of length of pull measurements for various types of rifles. And you can find that on page 156 to 158, I believe. And they say if your length of pull for your AR pistol with a brace attached to it is similar to any of these rifles, then it's likely going to be considered an, a rifle under this new rule and therefore an SBR that you need to register and, and be taxed um, under the NFA. Now, those are kind of the main ones that I wanted to mention. There were some discussions, like I mentioned, about buffer tubes. Um, and that's a little bit more complicated um, when you look at the whole buffer tube issue, because some people are saying, well, even if you pulled a brace off of it, it could still likely be hit because it has a buffer tube and the buffer tube has at the end of it. And it does have some surface area that maybe you could shoulder um, when it comes to that portion of it. Um, the ATF talks about how the main factor that you want to look, look at is whether the tube is necessary for the cycle of operations. If the tube is not necessary for the cycle of operations, then it's surface area. You are adding to the end of this firearm that shows maybe you are intending to fire it from the shoulder. Cause I mean, in some way it kind of makes sense because if you don't need to attach something to the end of it, and it's not, you don't need to add it to the end to where you need it to fire, like actually cycle that firearm for it to be cycled in a specific way so it can operate you know, correctly. Why then would you be adding it? Traditionally, it's maybe because you want to be able to shoulder it. I'm not saying I agree with the ATF, but that's the logic they are going down. Um, and, and this, sorry, I'm still a little bit sick from SHOT Show. <laughs> like that's the one bad thing about going to SHOT Show is you can always, um, get catch something i mean you every time everybody gets like some sort of shot show crud where you're got a cold or something you probably hear my voice still like i got a little something i don't know um but when it comes to the main important factors you can for the buffer tube issue i would direct you guys to maybe uh, look to page 106 um, and it talks about the consideration and says this consideration is drawn from the proposed worksheet 4999 which assessed two points for extended AR type pistol buffer tubes, inclusion of folding adapter, extending length of pool and use of spacers to extend length of pool. So there they're saying there were certain points that were given to you through the worksheet 4999. And it was two points. If you had an extended AR type pistol buffer tube, if you had some sort of um, folding adapter, which extended the length of pool, think of maybe a law tactical folder, or maybe you had some sort of spacers that were added to the end of the firearm that extended the length of pool. So what they're saying here is the whole discussion about buffer tubes, the factors that they pulled out of the worksheet were specific to you adding some sort of extension to that buffer tube. Um, 
these extensions provided additional material to the firearm that is not necessarily required for the cycle of operations and therefore can be an indicator that the firearm is designed, made, and intended to be fired from the shoulders, what the ATF is saying. So there again, they're saying that if you have a law tactical folder, maybe spacers or other extensions beyond what is actually required just to operate the firearm, they will then take that into consideration as an indicator that it that firearm is in fact intended to be fired from the shoulder. Um, they state in contrast to that, like just below that, that in contrast, material on a firearm that extends the rear surface area of the firearm towards the shooter, but is required for the cycle of operations, such as an AR type pistol with a standard six to six and a half inch buffer tube may be an indicator that the firearm is not designed, made, or intended to be fired from the shoulder. So from my understanding of reading this, um, a standard pistol buffer tube would be okay, but putting maybe a law tactical folder on it, spacers, you know, things of that nature, something, or maybe an extended buffer tube or an AR rifle style buffer tube that would extend it beyond what is necessary. Then they're saying they're going to take those as an indicator that maybe it is in fact intended to be fired from the shoulder. And that's really what all this, I, I know you've heard me say it a million times now, because I hear myself saying it a million times, but that's because that's one of the main factors for this is that's how they're kind of bringing all this stuff in. Is this firearm in fact intended to be fired from the shoulder? If it is, then they're saying this falls under the definition of a rifle, which they just created. Um, so that's something to also to keep in mind. Um, so that's with the whole pistol buffer tube. Another thing I want to mention is other spots within the final rule, they talk about buffer tubes as well as far as if the accessory you attach to it is adjustable, then it's also an indication that it's intended to be fired from the shoulder. If the buffer tube itself has recesses or dimples in it to where you can adjust the accessory, they will also take that as an indicator that it's intended to be fired from the shoulder. Now, whether that whether or not that means that you can't have a buffer tube on it at all with um, dimples or adjustability, um, in my point of view, it's yet to be seen. Um, it's hard, in my opinion, it'd be hard for the ATF to argue that this firearm, let's say it needs a buffer tube to actually operate correctly, let's say just in a normal AR pistol and 5.56 where it needs, you know, the buffer tube and the spring and all that stuff. Um, let's say maybe it does in fact have dimples in it. You don't have a brace. You don't even own a brace. Um, it would, might be hard for them to argue that just because it has, you know, the adjustability on the buffer tube without anything attached to it. Therefore it's actually a rifle and it's intended to be fired from shoulder. It's a harder argument for them to make, but it's still a factor they will take into consideration. So I wanted to bring it up to you guys. Some people are being, um, you know, in my opinion, yes, it probably is safer just to just have a standard, you know, AR pistol buffer tube that doesn't have any adjustability or any dimples. If you want to be 100% safe, that's probably the best route to go. Um, to not have a pistol brace or have a pistol brace to where you couldn't add to a specific type of rifle and where it wouldn't even work. Uh, what I'm thinking about is maybe like one of the um, 
you know, Franklin Armory, when I bought their AR pistol, they just had a standard AR pistol buffer tube and it had like, you know, some cushion on it, but it was not adjustable. You couldn't put a brace on it. You couldn't put a stock on it, anything like that. You would have to remove that and put a different type of buffer tube on it so that you could then put those accessories on that firearm. Um, so that's the route some people are going. And I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. It's probably one of the safer ways to go. Um, but I just wanted to add that in there for people who maybe are curious. Um, and again, I want to mention, although I'm a lawyer, this is not legal advice. I The goal of this is not to give you guys legal advice and tell you guys what you need to do. It's instead to help you walk through a little bit through this rule and understand it a little bit more for yourself so you can make your own educated determination on what you need to do. Um, you know, I have my own liability issues as far as I can't provide you guys legal advice because you're not my clients. Um, so just wanted to, again, reiterate that not legal advice. Um, just wanted to give you guys my thoughts on this, how I'm perceiving this. There are great breakdowns from a variety of other people and organizations. I think it's always best to go through multiple sources to cross-reference people because, again, I could miss things. And one of the jokes about attorneys is you could have a thousand attorneys read something and they will interpret it a thousand different ways. So it's always best to get a variety of opinions because I never claim to be 100% accurate or know everything about everything. That is by no means do I know everything. So again, just wanted to throw that out there. Now, there are some new things that have popped up about this new rule since it was released. And I'll, I'll be candid. I haven't researched these heavily because some of these things have kind of been popping up while we were at SHOT Show. I did talk a little bit with some of the attorneys and people who were bringing these up. Um, but again, there are some videos out there. There are some breakdowns from the various organizations who brought these up. So I would recommend you guys look at that stuff as well. One of the first ones was in regards to the whole imported rifles aspect of the final rule on pistol braces. Uh, FRAC, the FRAC, put out a notice indicating that because of some specific language in the comment section, um, there is indications that imported pistols configured with braces on them may now have no option other than to be destroyed or to be turned over to the ATF. Now, why is that? Um, so first you will find this in the response to comments in the final rule. There are a variety of comments that the ATF had to respond to. And one of them, it was in regards to the USC 922 subsection R, which talks about imported firearms. And so I'll just read this section to you guys, and then I'll try to clarify and give you an understanding of what they're talking about here. Um, it says the department disagrees with the commander who suggested that there will be financial implications resulting from the removal and replacement of imported parts for owners who imported pistols and added a stabilizing brace. The commander incorrectly interpreted 18 USC 922 subsection R as requiring the removal and replace, replacement of imported parts to comply with section 922 R. Section 922 R generally makes it unlawful for any person to assemble from imported parts any semi-automatic rifle, and 27 CFR 478.39 provides that a person 
may not assemble a semi-automatic rifle using, using more than 10 of the imported parts listed in the relevant paragraphs of the regulation. The criminal violation under 18 U.S.C. 922R is for the assembly of the semi-automatic rifle. Again, I want to emphasize what they're talking about there is the assembly of a semi-automatic rifle. Therefore, modification of this kind of firearm through the removal of the relevant parts would not cure 922R, the 922R violation, because the assembly has already occurred. Nevertheless, for the purposes of the costs outlined in the standalone RIA, ATF assumes this group may use another scenario, such as destroying the firearm or turning it into the ATF by using the uh, population derived from the bump stock type devices as a proxy. So what, I mean, in simplest terms, what they're saying here is you have these imported firearms that were pistols. They came into the possession of people. These people then added a brace to them. What the ATF is saying is at that point, those items were no longer a pistol. Since they are saying that these type of firearms with a brace attached to them have always been a rifle or an SBR in violation of the NFA, that issue or that was a violation in itself, that they had violated these people who had these imported AR pistols and added a brace to it. At that point, they had assembled a semi-automatic rifle because, again, the ATF is saying these items with a brace attached to it is, in fact, a rifle. And since it is, in fact, a rifle, it violated 922R. They had assembled a semi-automatic rifle. They are saying, therefore, those people cannot cure that issue by removing the brace because they have already violated 922R. So you can't cure that in the ATF's eyes by just removing the brace. You've already assembled and manufactured a rifle in violation of 922R. Therefore, the ATF is saying the only option you have is to either destroy the firearm or to turn it over to the ATF. Now, that is something new. It was, again, kind of at glance, kind of referenced in two paragraphs in the comment section. But it's important for a lot of people who had imported a variety type of a variety of various pistols, maybe added a bracelet to them because they, you know, according to the ATF's prior guidance had said that, you know, adding a brace to these types of firearms doesn't make it a rifle. Now, all of a sudden, they're saying, yes, it did. It did make it a rifle. It's always been a rifle. And by assembling a rifle, you have violated 922R in relation to imported firearms and assembling a semi-automatic semi rifle. And the only way you could solve that issue would be either to destroy them or to turn them over to the ATF. So that was something new that popped up while we were at SHOT Show and a lot of people were talking about. So if you want some clarity on that, I would recommend maybe reading the frack. Um, notice that they put out, there was a variety of other videos out there talking about it. Maybe I will do a dedicated video on the channel about that, but that's something that I thought needed to be mentioned also in this podcast. The other thing that popped up was in regards to GOA's attorney, um, Stephen uh, Stimbley. I, I always mess up his name. I did get to meet him at SHOT, at Shot Show. He's a very nice man. Um, I've followed his stuff. He was the lead attorney in the Antioch case, I believe, which is the challenge to the New York Concealed Carry Improvement Act, the uh, concealed carry laws that New York passed in direct defiance to the Supreme Court's Bruin decision. So he's that attorney. So very credible attorney. 
knows his stuff, is part of these litigations. I talked to him. He's He seems like a very nice man. He's very pro 2A. Um, while at SHOT Show, I guess, he was reading uh, uh, the pistol brace rule and had some questions and went over to the ATF's booth because the ATF has a booth at SHOT Show, which is absolutely ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but they have a booth there. So he went over there and talked to, I believe, was the uh, deputy director that was there and asked a question in regards to what would happen if an individual got a denial after 88 days of their NICS check. So the NICS check would need to be cleared in 88 days. And if it wasn't, the, um, the laws essentially say that the ATF could take some sort of enforcement actions. And so he asked if the ATF would in fact take enforcement actions if the NICS background check did not go be, uh, went beyond the 88 days. Um, and the deputy uh, director there of the ATF said that yes, the ATF would in fact take enforcement actions against people where their NICS background checks went beyond 88 days, specifically in regards to the registration of SBRs. Because at that point, they would be considered an illegal possession of an SBR, which is concerning. Um, again, I haven't de delved deep, deep into this. I will at some point, um, but that is another concerning thing. So, and I think the concerning thing really about this is that the through this final rule, we don't know all the intricacies that are hidden in it. No matter how many times we read it, there could be other things that pop in, uh, pop up. Um, there could be other things that, you know, may not seem like a big deal from the language at a glance, but then when you tie them into other operational things like the NICS background check system and, and you know, it needing to clear before the 88 days and if go, if going beyond the 88 days, there are other complications that can pop up. Um, and that's really one of the, and again, like a lot of people weren't thinking about the whole imported firearms, the 922R violations, um, which again is a complication because of this new rule on pistol braces. So there are a lot, those two are, there are issues with themselves, but one of the main things I want to emphasize in the podcast is there are likely going to be a lot of issues that pop up because of this final rule. And we've seen this play out a ton with a lot of gun control laws, you know, a lot of the time you have these government agencies or the legislators write these rules or laws in a way where they don't actually think out, think through all the variety of ramifications that these things will have. And these are just two things that we've, that have popped up and have become of a concern over the last week. And I'm, I have no doubt that more things are going to pop up. Another significant one that has popped up and you know, I wish there was a better solution is the aspect of restricted states. So for example, I know a lot of my viewers are California gun owners. I am a California gun owner. And in the state of California, we have a restriction on the possession of NFA items, specifically also uh, SBR, suppressors, things of that nature. We cannot have NFA items. So, you know, prior, because of the ATF's interpretation, we, we already have restrictions, heavy restrictions on what style of AR pistols, for example, we can have, you know, with them being fixed magged and can't have, you know, 30 round magazines in them. They have to be 10 rounds, um, you know, things of that nature. We already have heavy, heavy restrictions on those types of, of, of items. And they're, you know, these AR pistols are configured in a way to also um, be 
in accordance with, you know, Penal Code 30515, which deals with our ban on so-called assault weapons. So we already have these heavy restrictions on configurations of specific firearms. Then we also have our ban on NFA items, the SBRs. So we can't have SBRs and we have to have AR pistols configured in a very specific way. Well, under this new rule on uh, pistol braces, essentially any AR pistol with a brace attached to it is going to be considered to be an SBR. But here in the state of California, we can't have SBRs. So what then? And this was one of the comments that I actually sent off to the ATF. One of my main concerns with the pistol brace was in fact for myself and other California gun owners where I raised this issue of what is the ATF going to do for people in restricted states? Now, the ATF responded to that comment. Now, I don't know if it was specifically my comment or other comments that raised this very issue. I don't know. They don't say whose comment, but that was one of the comments or one of the issues I raised. And essentially what the ATF said is we don't care. It, it doesn't matter. You know, kind of get wrecked, California gun owners. We don't care. It's not our problem. And in fact, the, they state that the department disagrees that it is required to provide additional options for individuals who may be in violation of state law. The, de the department believes that the important public safety benefits of this rule, as discussed more fully in the accompanying regulatory impact analysis, outweigh any interest in retaining the firearm for the few individuals who might find themselves in such circumstances. So there they're saying, we believe the public interest is so important that we are not even going to consider what impact this will have on state like California or gun owners in states like California where you can't have NFA items. They pretty much say it's not our problem. Deal with it. You know, we don't care. Now, I've mentioned this in a few videos um, about maybe what options you have in California. I've been thinking about this because, again, I'm a California gun owner. Um, one of the options like everybody has is to simply destroy the pistol brace, um, to detach the pistol brace, not use it on your AR pistol your fixed mag AR pistol build in the state of California. That is one option, obviously not the best option, but it is an option you have out there. One of the options we just don't have on the table is to register it to get the $200 tax stamp waived through the amnesty because again, we can't register an SBR. So I don't recommend you doing that because it's just not a good idea. <laughs> Let's just leave it at that. And the other options you would have would be to maybe configure it in a way where it's still in compliance with the ATF's new rule and also with the state of California's uh, laws in regards to what they consider to be a so-called assault weapon. One of those options would be to maybe throw an upper on it that is 16 inches or more because the ATF rule is specific to um, barrel length or barrel lengths that are less than 16 inches. So if it's 16 inches or more, then it doesn't hit the ATF's rule and also doesn't hit the state of California's rule. So that's one option you have. Um, another probably easy option is like, for example, if you had like a Franklin Armory AR pistol that you had fixed magged, if you still have the upper where it was a single shot, you know, that's an option because it's no longer a semi-automatic, you know, it's just a single shot rifle at that point. It's pretty much just a bolt action rifle. That could be an option. There are other California compliance options maybe you would have as far as like the Cali key, which again makes it a single shot. Um... You could remove maybe the buffer tube to where it's just the old, you know, pistol buffer tube. Um, 
if you ask me what maybe I'm going to do, I, I don't really know at this point. I think I might just throw a 16 inch upper on it and maybe just call it a day and, you know, treat it as a fixed mag rifle build. Maybe do something like that. Um, again, I haven't played with all the legal implica implications of, of what, you know, we still have some time. So I'm going to weed through like what, what all the options, you know, might hit as far as legal implications for the state of California and, and federally. Um, but this is just me kind of brainstorming off the top of my head, maybe some solutions we have. And, you know, that's kind of just what pops into my mind going, you know, off the top of my head, maybe what some solutions you have. But again, like I mentioned, the major concern with the pistol brace rule is there are so many ripple effects that this has on federal laws and state laws beyond just what expressly it states in the final rule. There are a lot of things that are going to pop up and are going to become a major, major issue because of this final rule. Now, the last thing I want to talk about is kind of what now? Where do we go from here? Talking to the variety of organizations that were at SHOT Show and just talking to them because I know quite a bit of them, the attorneys and, and the org heads, no doubt there are going to be lawsuits. There are going to be lawsuits that are filed in a variety of circuit courts, a variety of jurisdictions against the ATF in their final rule on pistol braces. My best educated guess would be that there are probably going to be a couple that are filed in the Fifth Circuit, and they are likely going to try to do like a notice of related cases to Judge Reed O'Connor who was the judge responsible for the Vanderstock case, which dealt with the ATS rule on frames and receivers. The reason why they're doing that is because Judge Reed O'Connor, or the reason they're probably going to do that is because Judge Reed O'Connor has been favorable in regards to the ATF's overreach on the frames and receivers rule. And this pistol brace rule is just so much more drastic than the frames and, re frames and receivers rule was overreach by the ATF, very clear overreach by the ATF. This one is as well. It just impacts so many more people because, again, I think the estimations were like 40 to 100 million individuals within the U.S. are going to be impacted by this final rule on pistol braces. So they're probably going to get the same, try to get the same judge, try to get the same outcome. I know I talked to some variety of manufacturers and um, sellers of a variety of types of pistol braces and, and items at SHOT Show who probably will become named plaintiffs in those lawsuits and try to seek protection from the ETF for themselves and their customers, similar to how companies like 80% Arms, um, Polymer 80, Tactical Mach Machining, Defense Distributed, all of them got from Judge Reed O'Connor in the Vandersaw case. You'll probably see that also tried to play out in this new lawsuit or these new lawsuits against pistol braces. One of the other things they're going to try to do because of that is to probably try to get a national TRO against the enforcement of this. And that will be sought to try to take effect before the final rule goes into effect uh, before the 120 days. How fast these lawsuits are going to move, I, I can't tell you. I don't know uh, when they're going to be filed. I don't know. Um, but I would suspect maybe before the 120 days and they will try to stop it from before it goes into enforcement before it affects everybody before those 120 days also they will seek a preliminary injunction um if you see one of these cases win at a tro level that likely indicates that they will win at a preliminary injunction level um 
that's just typically how it works out because these standards to get a TRO are similar for these standards to get a preliminary injunction. So you will see that play out as well. Um, and like I said, it'll likely be in the fifth circuit is where the big cases are, or at least the ones that we should be focusing on. And also that is significant because you had the fifth circuit on long panel recently strike down the ATS bump stock rule, which took similar actions and, and used these same types of rationales in process um, in the bump stock rule that they have now used in the pistol brace rule. So you have that precedent coming out of the fifth circuit on long panel, which hopefully will then bleed into these other cases, the challenges to the frames and receivers rule, and now the pistol brace rule as well. So legally that's where, you know, this is kind of going from there. I know some people have talked about, you know, the congressional review act, you know, that in my opinion is not going to do much for us. Um, it's still, it would have to be approved by the house Congress Biden. And if he didn't veto it, then you would have to have a majority in the Senate. And it's just, that's not going to happen. And then there have been some other bills that have been introduced recently by like Matt Getz and uh, to abolish the ATF. Um, again, not going to happen right now with the makeup of the House and Senate and Biden. Um, and with a lot of those, those are kind of just good feel good bills. Um, I know a lot of us complain all the time. Like, why were those type of bills never introduced when we had the House, Senate and presidency? You know, probably because they actually don't want the ATF to be abolished. They just want you to think that they want the ATF abolished when it serves their political purposes. So um, you have those things out there. But really, I think the most relief we're going to get is from some of these lawsuits that will pop up, you know, probably fairly soon. So keep an eye out for those. Of course, when those are filed, I'll, I'll let you know on the main channel. Um, but hopefully that gave you a little bit more insight into what's going on with the ATF pistol brace rule, some of the consideration, some of the language that's in it, a little bit more in depth on some of these topics and just, you know, some of the other things that have now popped up because of the pistol base rule, like, you know, the 88 day, you know, issue and the imported firearms issue and, you know, the impacts on California and just some of these other things, you know, so definitely not great. Um, you know, like I said, it was one of the main talking points at SHOT Show. I feel like I've talked about the pistol brace rule, like for two weeks straight now. Um, every single person, almost every single person who stopped me at Chacho was asking about the pistol brace rule. And it was also a, a big, uh, talking point be between creators. Uh, like I mentioned, I got to talk to the TRX arms guys and they asked me about it and, and a ton of other creators also asked me about it. Now, the last thing I want to mention is that if you're not subscribed to the podcast channel here, the second channel, please subscribe to the channel. This is kind going to be kind of like my backup channel, as well as the channel that I will grow the podcast on that will host the podcast. And so this is just going to be kind of my secondary layer of protection and also give you guys a unique set of content. Like I said, the podcast, a little bit more in-depth review of, of things and in-depth analysis on a variety of topics. And also I'll be doing some guest interviews here really soon with some of your favorite, you know, big content creators. And also there are some other things that are in, in the works that I, I can't tell you what they are, but there will likely be some pretty significant collaborations that are going to happen here soon, likely on the main channel as well. Um, with people I know you guys probably watch. Um, no one loves some big content creators that I'm actually very excited be that I watched while, you know, before I ever got into YouTube and doing it myself, guys that I watched, um, that I watched in law school, 
um, that I kind of had to hide because of my liberal professors and, and classmates who probably didn't approve of me, you know, supporting the Second Amendment and, and liking firearms. But so there are some collaborations coming on the main channel and here on the podcast that I think you guys will really enjoy. So stay tuned. Make sure you're, you're subscribed to here on the second channel and also just stay tuned on the main channel as well and, and be subscribed over there. So again, thank you guys for all of your support. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you guys have any questions, comment down below. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, leave a review that again, really helps them to grow over there on those platforms. And yeah, if you guys have any specific topics that you have in mind that you'd like me to cover, again, leave down below. Or if there's any specific uh, guests that you would like to have on the podcast or have me have on the podcast, would like me to talk to, let me know down in the comment section. So as always, thank you all for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And don't forget this nation was built by arms scholars and this nation will be maintained by arms scholars.